Amen. All right. Once again, we're so glad that you're here. I want to introduce our speaker for tonight. Uh, and I met him physically yesterday, and there's already kindred spirit. And uh, I already knew I was going to love him because Keith and Tanya love him. And, uh, and we've already, for those of us that are going to be going to uh, Israel in November, we've already requested, and he's available to be our tour guide, which will be, make it special as well. So let me just introduce him. Uh, tonight our speaker is Aharon uh, Lavarco. And uh, if you have a Messianic Jew speak to you who's from the Middle East, typically it's very hard to understand. They have a, a harsh accent. He has a cool accent, all right? It's really easy to listen to because he was raised as a Jew in New Zealand, and at 19 years old, he received Jesus for salvation. And he'll tell you about that. That's a big deal to leave uh, Orthodox Judaism and to follow Jesus as Messiah. And so he moved to Israel. It's kind of what Jews do. And uh, while there, he joined the military, spent 19 years. Uh, is that right? Nine. Nine years, uh, retired as a sergeant, okay? And, uh, and now he does tours, and now he's on uh, different uh, uh, coalitions and committees on behalf of Israel. He speaks here in the States on a television station that I joke about Mike Lindell, you know, about your MyPillow. Uh, but he's got a television program, and so Aharon speaks on that. And so uh, we're going to be blessed tonight. So Aharon, you come on up, brother, and uh, it's all yours. Show him some love. Testing, testing. Hey, thank you, Pastor Joel. Thanks, brother. Bless you, man. Thank you. Shalom, y'all. Is that how you say it in Tennessee? Yeah, excuse me for my accent. I actually don't think that I'm the one with the accent. I think you, y'all have got the accent. But uh, I've lived in Israel for 30 years, and I still have my New Zealand accent. Yeah, I immigrated uh, many years ago. Uh, few suitcases, few hundred dollars. And um, I, uh, I grew up in New Zealand, Jewish family, and had a dramatic experience when I was 19. Wasn't looking for God, but I was very, very lost. And a Christian man introduced me to his faith, uh, his Bible, and like my eyes were opened. Uh, my big struggle was how am I going to tell my family, and they were totally against it, and uh, cut me off, threw me out, and ended up going my own way. Uh, I actually uh, joined a Baptist church and uh, uh, was there for seven years. I went to a Bible school for three years, and then I immigrated. Um, and uh, for the last 17 years, I've been a, a tour guide. And uh, actually, one of the songs, the song that we just sang, How Great Is Our God, uh, that's a song that I, I make all my tourists sing, but I put a little bit of a slant towards the end because uh, one, one of the verses we, I say we should sing, How Great Is Our Guide. Uh, but, but it's because in Psalm 48 it says, God will be our guide even unto the end, okay? So, but we have fun on tours. We have, it's a, it's a life-changing experience. If you haven't signed up, I think there's still probably some seats, um, and you can see so much of the geography, the geog geology, the archaeology, the history, uh, the different bodies of water, the, the Sea of Galilee, 
the Med Sea, the Dead Sea, the Red Sea, and of course the Jordan River. And, uh, and as Baptists, you'll be pleasantly surprised to know that John, actually, he was the first Southern Baptist because where he baptized was the southern part of the Jordan River, right? So that makes him a Southern Baptist. Anyway, uh, we, if you come along, I guarantee you're going to have some fun. But um, I'm here uh, for a month. I've been in Seattle. I've been in California, Austin, Texas, Florida, and here I am. And it's a thrill to be here in Tennessee. It's my second time. Um, and uh, I hope it won't be my last time. And it's good to see some friendly, familiar faces and to meet people for the first time. So there's so much to talk about uh, regarding Israel, and Pastor Joel and I talked about one key thing that I want to touch on tonight, apart from end time stuff, and that is the rebuilding of the temple. Uh, I'll get there in just a minute, but as, a, as an opening, I thought what might kind of paint a frame, a picture, so that everything can fit inside of that frame is the story in the book of Genesis of Joseph. In Judaism, we have a lot of messianic figures, including Abraham, including David, including Moses. And why are they called messianic figures? Because they all point to the Messiah. Abraham was promised through his seed will, uh, will all the nations be blessed. Uh, Moses, in Deuteronomy 18.18, 18, said, the Lord your God will raise up unto you one like me. Listen to him. And of course, we see how uh, the one like Moses, in the same way that uh, Moses was hunted as a little baby, but he was divinely spared, so we see Jesus of Nazareth was hunted as a baby and yet was divinely spared. Moses was the lawgiver that went up on the mountain and Matthew 5 says, seeing a multitude, he went up on a mountain. Moses was the mediator. We see in 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Yeshua HaMashiach, Christ Jesus. We see Moses was the deliverer. Jesus was the deliverer. We also see Moses when the people sinned and they needed healing and forgiveness, he offered up that serpent in the wilderness. Thank you, appreciate that. Uh, he offered up the serpent in the wilderness, and when the people looked, they were uh, healed. And uh, John 3, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And so then you've got David. To David was promised, there shall never cease someone to sit upon the seat of David. And of course, so important in the genealogies of Jesus, the title, the son of Abraham and the son of David. Another very important messianic figure is Joseph. In fact, the ancient rabbis say that the Messiah, he will not only be the son of David, the conquering kingly Messiah, but he will also be the son of Joseph, the suffering Messiah. We know in the story of Genesis, Joseph was a classic picture of someone who did nothing wrong, and yet he suffered so much. What for? Wasn't for nothing. It was actually to save 
not only his family, not only his people, but actually the world of that day. And when Joseph finally ended up being resurrected from that grave, so to speak, that prison, he became pretty much overnight the, the, the ruler of Egypt. And then the story, through circumstances, through the famine and the drought that started to hit in Egypt, the brothers were forced to find food. And in that day and in that period, there was only one place in the world to get food, and that was through Joseph. And remember what happened when the brothers came to Joseph. It says that Joseph knew who they were, but it says he made himself strange unto his brethren. He hid his identity. And I want to just begin with that because I believe in our 21st century, the, the, the picture of that biblical story is very similar to what I see going on in Israel today. 2,000 years ago, the Jewish people along with the Romans, what did they do? They crucified the Messiah. The brothers, the Jewish people, they handed him over. Like it says in John 1, 8, uh, 1, 12, he came to his own and his own received him not, generally speaking. And so uh, Jesus, or the son of Joseph, uh, 2,000 years ago was crucified. But God the Father raised him from the dead. For the last 2,000 years, the Lord has predominantly been moving among the Gentile nations, the, the Gentile world, as Paul calls it, the times of the Gentiles. He actually says that Israel has experienced blinding or hardening in part until the fullness of the Gentiles. And it's an interesting question, when will that fulfillment be? But uh, what happened through the, uh, the, um, the situation in Europe at the end of the Second World War, the Jewish people were forced either to flee to many parts of the world or to come back to their ancient homeland. And we all know in 1948, the state of Israel was born. And since then, waves of Jews have been coming back. The prophet Ezekiel says, I will gather you from the nations. I will bring you up from your graves. And this is the picture of the dead bones. You know, the Jewish people, they are the house of Israel. They are the dead bones. That's what Ezekiel calls them. Even though they're dead bones, they are called the house of Israel. He's bringing them back. And the prophecy goes on to say, I will breathe my spirit upon them. And it's, there's a picture of them rising up, flesh, sinew coming on them. And then they rise up as a mighty army. And that's what we're seeing in Israel today. But what we're also seeing, that's, on, that's in, the, in, 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 a, in, a, in some ways in a spiritual way, but also in a physical way. And when you come on tour, you will see the incredible miracles uh, of how we've gone from a country with very, very little water. In 1948, uh, no organized army, hospitals, education, uh, agriculture, uh, universities, water, 
military, terrible situation. Basically, we were about a half a million Holocaust survivors. And now we've kind of got over that first generation of being, um, in a way, victims and shaken off that victim mentality. And now we are strong. Now I believe we are coming in many ways into our calling originally, which was to be a light to the world, a light to the nations. And in so many fields, in, in science, in medicine, in agriculture, even military, uh, in water, in technology, high tech, we are selling our expertise, our knowledge all around the world. Now, that doesn't mean perfect. We are far from perfect. We have a lot of corruption. We have abortion. We have our drug issue. We have our uh, alcohol uh, issue. We have uh, our political corruption and all of that. But we are, like all of us, a work in progress. And what we've seen in the last 70, 74, 75 years, yeah, we're going to be celebrating our 75th anniversary this year in May, uh, incredible uh, change and growth. But on the spiritual side, when I immigrated 31 years ago, I was one of about 2,000 what we call ourselves messianic Jews, Jews that believe in Jesus, that he is the Messiah, the son of the living God. And uh, back then, we were looked upon as a Jewish cult. Today, things have changed. 31 years later, we're about 35, 40,000, and we have people in uh, positions in the, in the government, uh, professors in universities, top lawyers, top officers in the military. We are making our way into society. Now we're looked upon as just another Jewish sect. Just like 2,000 years ago, according to Josephus Flavius, there were 24 different Jewish sects living uh, in the land of Judea. Uh, some of them we know, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, etc. Today, we have very similar. We have many different streams of Judaism, many kinds of Jews, Orthodox Jews, ultra-Orthodox Jews, uh, conservative Jews, Reform Jews, Messianic Jews, Orange Jews, Pineapple Jews, all kinds of Jews we have today. And we are there to stay. We are making impact. So on a spiritual level, the veil is starting to be taken away. But there still is a veil over the Jewish people's lives. I'm generalizing, of course. And don't forget, in the early church, the first believers, they were all Jews, right? You know that, uh, that uh, um, all the first three believers were Peter, James, and John, and then it grew to 12, then to 70, and then 120, and then uh, 3,000, and then 5,000. They were all Jewish. Um, and then in Acts chapter 10, we have a Gentile that becomes a believer, Cornelius. But I think it's important for us, the, especially the Gentile uh, universal church, to really understand their Jewish roots. And, uh, you know, I, I, I usually joke and I say, John was not a Baptist, right? Uh, Mary was not a Catholic, and Jesus was not a Christian. 
a right context, historical context. Uh, but we've made them that way. And that's why I think it's important to go back and to come to the land and really understand the Bible from its true historical, social, cultural context. I mean, you don't have to come to Israel to do that. You can study. But I think it does make a difference when you actually um, come and see. Now, the Jewish people, when I say the Jewish people, today we're about almost 8 million And that can be broken down, as I kind of joked a a while ago, you know, orthodox, ultra-orthodox. And even among all of those little splinter groups, you've got different kinds of orthodox, different kinds of ultra-orthodox. It's like Baptists in the United States, right? You've got so many different Baptists. And uh, even us Messianic Jews, there's so many different kinds. Uh, So... Out of the 8 million Jewish people, I would say you've probably got about, I don't know, 40%. That's almost 4 million. About 40% who I would call, to some degree or another, observant or God-fearing. Okay? There are different streams. Now, in 1948, the majority of the Jewish people were not observant. They were secular. The same in 1967. If you look at this picture here, that land there that you're looking at, that has a number of different names. One of the names is Mount Zion. One of the names is Mount Moriah. That's where Abraham offered up Isaac, or as the Muslims say, where he offered up Ishmael. That's also the place where that golden dome is, where Solomon builds the first temple, and where Herod builds the second temple. So it's a very sacred place place. It's called today the Temple Mount. And uh, that site is a very sacred site to Orthodox Jews. Now, in 1948, that piece of land was not Israel. Why? Because the United Nations, when in 1948 they partitioned the land, they actually split Jerusalem down the middle. They gave the west side to Israel, and they gave the east side, which includes all of this, to Jordan, okay? In fact, if I can, I don't know if this is going to work. I should have prepared. No, it's not going to work. I'm too short. But if you can try and imagine the right side of our land That was Jordan. We had a very narrow strip. But in 1967, at the famous Six-Day War, we actually took over that right part of the land, and they are our new borders. And the Jordanians got pushed back on on the right side of that line. So on the left side of that line, what is it called today? It's called the West Bank, because it's the West Bank of Jordan. We do not call it the West Bank. We call it Judea and Samaria. And this is the land of Judea. This is our heartland. Since 1967, more and more Jewish people that have been coming back are observant Jews. Okay, fast forward it to today, 2023. 
And a lot of those Orthodox Jews, because the numbers are growing, they believe and they feel it in the spirit and they pray about it and they talk about it. They believe that we are in what's called, what they call a messianic age. What does that mean? If, if you study a lot of the ancient rabbis who talk about something very, very important. I'm gonna talk about this a little bit tomorrow from Psalm 90. Verse one in Psalm 90 says, Lord, throughout our generations, you have been our dwelling place. And for the Jewish people, a dwelling place, the Hebrew word actually is Shekinah or Shekinah, which in Hebrew means the dwelling place. For the Jewish people, a dwelling place, a house for God is very, very important. Sadly, though, we've had our two temples destroyed. We have not had a temple since A.D. 70. And when the temple was destroyed, the temple which stood right there where that golden dome is, do you know I have written at home, and it's all documented, I have about five or six different sources who all wrote that when the Romans destroyed that temple in AD 70, the Shekinah glory was seen departing out of the city from the Mount of Olives. Five different sources, at least five. They saw physically the Shekinah glory departing. The Orthodox Jewish people believe now that the exiles of Israel, the scattered tribes are coming back, we're nearly 8 million now. After the, the tragedy of the Holocaust, where two-thirds of world Jewry was snuffed out, they believe the, a key sign that God's Shekinah glory is coming back is His people are coming back, number one. Number two, they believe when we keep the Shabbat, when the whole nation keeps the Sabbath, the Messiah will come. Well, the whole nation is not keeping the Sabbath, but they really are strong about this. And when you come to Israel, you will experience what it's like uh, in Israel celebrating the Sabbath. But they also believe something has to happen, and that is the rebuilding of the temple. When the temple is rebuilt, the Shekinah glory will come back. So, Back 10, 15 years, there was little talk about the rebuilding of the temple. There's a, a temple institution led by uh, uh, Chaim, Rabbi Chaim Reichman, and uh, he did some searches underneath the temple mount here in the 1970s, and in his book he wrote something. He said, I found something underneath the temple mount that I'm not allowed to publicly declare. Okay, now your guess is as good as mine. I personally think he could, could be talking about the ark. However, I don't believe the ark is so important. Why? Because when the first temple was destroyed in 586 BC, just before the Babylonians came to destroy it, the, the last Judean king, Zedekiah and Josiah before him, it says that they took the ark and they hid it. 
That's the last we've seen of the ark. So in the days of Jesus, the temple that was built in his day, which was built by King Herod the Great, there was no ark. And yet that was the temple that Jesus went to, that he taught in, that he calls my house shall be called a house of prayer. So he acknowledged it. And that to me, it kind of blows my mind a little bit because who built that temple? It was Herod. And I know that when you look at the the tabernacle of Moses, God gave him the pattern to build it. And when you look at the temple of Solomon, God gave the pattern to build that. But where did Herod get this chutzpah to build the temple? What he did before he built the temple, Nehemiah's temple was up there. That was the rebuilt temple of Solomon that had been destroyed. When the Israelites went to Babylon for 70 years, they came back. Three waves, Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, they began to rebuild the gates, the walls, the the altars. So when Herod was around in about 20 B.C., The temple that was standing there was Nehemiah's rebuilt temple. What did he do? He flattened it off, totally flattened it. He builds four walls of fortification, retaining walls, and he builds a platform. That's actually, that wall there is the only remaining wall. Although those stones that you see there, they're not the original ones, but the lower ones that even go under the ground, they are the original Herodian stones. But he builds four retaining walls, and on top, he builds the temple. And where did he get the the divine call to do that? Historians say that he really only did it to appease the Jewish people. Because before Herod came in, there was a lot of unrest in the land because the Romans, when they first came, in fact, do you know why the Romans actually came to that part of the world? They only came because we Jews were fighting among ourselves. A group of Jews called the Hasmonians or the Maccabees, they were fighting. And they were fighting with other splinter groups. So both of these groups called on the Romans. The Romans came and they, they looked at the trade routes, the spice routes, the Nabataean spice routes. And they realized, we like it here, we're going to stay here. When they started to pitch their tents, one group would not put up with Roman occupation, and they were the zealots. So they began to fight with the Romans. So the Romans had an idea. They brought in King Herod. Why? Because Herod was half Jewish. His father was, fought, was uh, converted to Judaism. And so they, the Roman Senate thought by, bring, by bringing Herod in, it would keep the peace. And Herod built builds this temple to try and appease the Jewish people, okay? So, but, but again, he, we, we don't see any divine pattern. He builds it twice as big. It's, a, it's, it's actually twice the size of that. And like I said, Jesus seems to give it his stamp of, of approval. He goes up, he, uh, he worships there, sacrifice, the sacrificial system is going, but in A.D. 70, as Jesus prophesied, 
He said not one stone will be left upon another. He wasn't talking about the walls. He was talking about the temple itself, and it was fulfilled. And we have never had a temple since. So going back to today, everyone, where are the Jewish people going to get this divine call to rebuild the temple? They're very careful because remember David, he, it was actually the first temple was actually his temple, not Solomon's. David was promised, but David was not allowed to build it because he was a man of war and he had blood on his hands. Remember? So Solomon built it. So, but based on that, the Jewish people are very careful because right now, the Golden Dome, that's a Muslim, a Muslim shrine. And you can't see it in this picture, but over here is a mosque, the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And our government have allowed the Muslims to remain in control up on the Temple Mount religiously. We, the Israelis, we are in control of the security, okay? So religiously, the Muslims are still up there. The Jewish people, there's only one place that they will build the temple, and that's that place there. Okay, but how's it gonna happen? So just put a pause on that, and I wanna take you to the book of Esther. You know, when the, uh, the rabbis were canonizing the scriptures, discussing what books were going to and what books were not gonna be included in the canon of scripture, they really strongly debated over the book of Esther. And who knows why? I, I'm sure you all know why. Anyone? Because the name of God is not mentioned even one time. However, we all know the story of Esther. We know that Mordecai was sitting in the gate. He overheard an assassination plot. It was brought to the king. It was found to be true. The men were killed. It was written in the, the Chronicles. We know that Esther happened to be chosen by King Ahasuerus to be the queen. By the way, the, the ancient rabbis say she was probably about 62 years old. Believe it or not. We'll talk about that another time if you want to know why. Um, she happened to be in the right place. Haman, this wicked, evil man rose up. A, a poor was spun, a lot was spun, and the day that it landed was the day that every Jew was gonna be annihilated in the 127 provinces. But Esther found herself in this situation. Her uncle Mordecai told her to go. Who knows, maybe for such a time as this, you've been chosen. And remember what she said? She said, I'll go, and if I perish, I perish. She goes, and by the way, Mordecai said, if you remain silent, relief and deliverance will come for the Jewish people. But who knows, maybe you've cho been chosen for such a time as this. She goes, and remember that what happens, Haman gets, uh, he gets exposed, he gets hung, and it's, the, the whole story is about being turned around. In fact, the theme the theme of the book of Esther is what I call the hiddenness of God. Number one, God's name is not mentioned. Number two, Mordecai told Esther to hide her identity. 
Remember, he said, don't tell anyone you're from the Jewish people. And so, and by the way, the name Esther is from the Hebrew word mustah, which means hidden. That's actually in her name. So the whole theme. That's why when we celebrate the Feast of Esther, the Feast of Purim, we wear costumes. We hide our identity. And, uh, and actually, the Jewish people, they, the, the religious, it's the only day of the year where they're allowed to get drunk. Why? Because they say, when you're drunk, you're out of control. And it reminds us, when our destiny is not in our hands, when we are out of control, there is an unseen God who is in control. And he turned the whole situation around. But the reason I draw your attention to that story is when you look at the book of Esther, you don't see God, you don't hear about God, but look what happened in that story. You can see God. If you've got spiritual eyes, you can see God. And now going back to the story today in the 21st century, when you see what's happening with the Orthodox people who are wanting to rebuild the temple, did you know that about four months ago, five red heifers arrived in Israel? Did anyone hear about that? The first time in 2,000 years, unblemished red heifers have been in the Holy Land. A red heifer is allowed up to five white hairs. And what's interesting is it was Christians who provided, who gave those over to the Jewish people. And I'll get to the, the Christian uh, part in just a minute. On top of that, for, for a few decades, the Orthodox people have been preparing the priestly garments. They've been preparing the priestly instruments. Literally a month ago, I read an article where um, men are preparing uh, biblical musical instruments like flutes and lyres. They have purchased a piece of land on the Mount of Olives, which is on the other side of this picture. Since the day they were born, there are a number of young Orthodox Jews. They're probably in their teenage years now. They have been set apart to be the priests. They have been protected. And when the red heifers reach three years of age, which will be in about two years' time, that's when, according to Numbers chapter 19, you are to sacrifice the red heifers, you are to take the ashes, sprinkle it over the priests, then the priests will be purified and ready to do the priestly function. And then lastly, you probably know that in the last two years, we have had five elections. You know, you think your political situation is a mess? Come to Israel. We have a new government. We have 120 members in our uh, government. And we have about 80 parties. You guys have, I think, two. And what happens is people go out and vote, and the party with the most uh, votes, they have about six weeks to form a government, but they have to have at least 61 seats out of the 120. Now, in our elections, no party ever gets anywhere near 61. So, for example, Benjamin Netanyahu's party, the Likud, they got about 32 seats 
So it's nowhere near 61. So they have to go out and find other parties to form a coalition of at least 61 seats. And he did that. But all the parties that he got into the coalition, they are all Orthodox Jews and pretty right-wing, pretty radical even. And what's interesting, the... Uh, the portfolio for the Ministry of Defense, internal, sorry, internal security, has been given to one of the most radical Orthodox Jews, right wing. And his position as the Minister of Internal Security means he is in charge of the Mossad, he is in charge of the Shabakh, who are the equivalent of the FBI, he is in charge of the border police, of the regular police, and here's the big thing. He is now in charge of the security up on the Temple Mount. And according to the laws of the state of Israel, Jews are allowed to go up and pray, even though the Muslims say, no, you're not allowed to. But according to the High Court of Justice, Jews are allowed to go up and pray on the Temple Mount on one condition, that the security minister says it's okay. And I just think it's really interesting that this minister has been given that place of in charge of the security up on the Temple Mount. Guys, think of the story of the book of Esther. There's no mention of God, and yet look at the picture. You see the hand of the Lord. Look at what is happening in Israel today. We have so many signs the, 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 the jigsaw puzzle is taking shape. The Jewish people believe that they must rebuild a temple. The Jewish people are coming back. The Orthodox people are keeping the Shabbat, and now they need a rebuilt temple. And even among themselves, there's debate. Who's going to build it? And what kind of temple will it be? They don't necessarily believe it has to be a big King Herod size or Solomonic size temple, they say we can build a nice building anywhere in the world. The most important thing is an altar, a place for sacrifice. But make no uh, mistake, there's only one place that they're going to do it, and that's up there on the Temple Mount. But how are they going to do it? Are the Muslims going to just roll out a red carpet and say, you know, we're, we're at the end of the day, we're, we're cousins, come. And you know what? That may happen. That may happen. And I'll tell you why. Because when your recent president, Donald Trump, uh, during his office, he did a lot of really good things for Israel. He moved the American embassy uh, from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, which every U.S. president said they were going to. But because of pressure from Muslim nations, uh, they didn't push through with it. But Donald Trump did. By the way, do you know what happened when he announced that he would do that? Literally overnight, posters went up everywhere all around Israel with his picture, his face, with his nice blonde hair, and the words, I love Jerusalem above. And in the word Jerusalem, the three middle letters in red, white, and blue USA. They're the three middle letters of Jerusalem. I love Jerusalem with Donald Trump's picture. 
Then he recognizes the Golan Heights as sovereign Jewish Israeli land because it was controversial. And by the way, if you go up to the Golan Heights in one of the new neighborhoods, there is a square right in the middle of this neighborhood, and it's now called the Donald J. Trump Square. So I don't know what you think about the guy, but you know what he's done for Israel is unbelievable. It will go down in history what he has done. But um, the other thing that some of you may not understand the, the significance of, both he and Benjamin Netanyahu, they, um, they implemented something called the Abraham Peace Accords. And the Abraham Peace Accords are basically eight new Muslim nations made peace with Israel. So our neighborhood, the Middle East, which is a pretty rough neighborhood, is a very different Middle East right now. And we have more and more Muslim nations that want to make peace with Israel. You may think, well, what's the big deal? Well, you need to understand the big deal is in 1967, when we took over East Jerusalem and the Golan Heights, the Muslim nations got together and they formed what is called the Arab League. Have you heard of the Arab League? It was founded in Khartoum, Sudan. And when they had the first Arab League meeting, they came away, and we're talking about uh, 300 million Muslims, you know, represented by their leaders, they came away with three declarations. And they all begin with the word no. No peace with Israel, no negotiations with Israel, and no recognition of Israel, okay? That changed in 1977 after the Yom Kippur War when Anwar Sadat from Egypt said, enough bloodshed. He made peace with Israel. Of course, it cost him his life. Remember, he was assassinated. Then the late King Hussein from Jordan in 1993 made peace with Israel. And now we have eight other nations and our new Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, when he came to power recently, he said, my two key things, priorities, number one, to deal with Iran, potentially going uh, nuclear, and number two, to try and bring Saudi Arabia into the peace accord. So going back to the thought of, will the Muslims one day go up to the Temple Mount and say, hey, you Jews, you know, we like you, you help us, you can build your temple next to us. I don't think it's gonna happen, however, I mentioned earlier that the, the people who had the red heifers, who gave them to the Jewish Sanhedrin recently, they were Christians. They are Christians. And the Jewish people, and this is a really interesting kind of revelation, the Jewish people more and more and more, and this is so new, they believe that the Gentiles are going to play a very significant role in end day events. Okay, this is not coming from Christian end time teachers here. This is coming from the rabbinical uh, leaders who are wanting to implement 
and to go ahead with the rebuilding of the temple. And it's really based on that verse, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. Now, that may be exciting, and I, and I really am excited about it, because we're going to see more and more involvement. We're going to see Jewish walls come down. They're going to open their hearts to Jewish people. And, and I think this is going back to the story of Joseph when I started. Joseph had a wall up. He had a veil and he put his brothers through a real strong test. And then at one stage, when he was ready, when he saw that they were ready, it says he, he sent everyone out of the house. And then it says there was no man in the room. And there's an interesting rabbinical interpretation of that verse. He sent everyone out of the house, and there was no man in the room. The first part where he sent everyone out of the house, he probably didn't want to shame them. He didn't want to embarrass them when he had to talk to them. Because remember what he said? He said, I am Joseph, whom you sold into slavery. You know, he reminded them what they did. So he didn't want to shame them. But the second part, where it says there was no man in the room, a very interesting rabbinic uh, interpretation is that there was no man's ego in that room. The brothers were so broken, they realized that the line of events that led them to those circumstances, they had no, no ground to stand on. And Joseph, his ego had gone because we all know how he dealt with his brothers. He didn't shame them. He didn't condemn them. He forgave them. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. It wasn't you that sent me, but it was God. What an amazing revelation that uh, Joseph had. And I think the Jewish people are coming to that place where God has brought them back home. In unbelief, that veil about who their Messiah is, it's still there. But slowly, slowly, it's coming down. And God is using the Gentile nations because the Jewish people know that their only true friends, apart from Jews around the world, are the evangelical Christians, the Christians who pray, who come, who support, who love Israel. And I'm talking about millions and millions of people like yourselves. So the walls are coming down, but there's still some way to go. And there's still, I think, a, a number of key things that have to happen. But one thing about how God may use the Gentiles, may use the Arab nations, that, that may be possible. However, it could be a trap. Why? Because we all know that there are movements around the world that some people call them these ecumenical movements. See, the Jewish people, the Sanhedrin, you've you got to hear some of their language. They, they come out and they say, the, the temple that will be built will be a very different temple than Solomon's and Herod's. It will be a temple for all nations, which is biblical. And if it's, if it's led by and overseen by God-fearing men, that's fine. But what happens if the, right, if the wrong people get into a position that involves the temple, we could see a dramatic change. And I have a lot of 
Christians who either write or ask me and say comments like, you know, why should we be concerned about the rebuilding of a temple? We believers, we don't need a temple. Jesus, he's the once and all eternal sacrifice. And that's true. And number two, they say, we are the temple. And that also is true. And uh, it's quite an interesting, uh, difficult thing to address. But the thing that comes to me as, as I get uh, challenged with that, and I get challenged a lot with that, is I believe in the scriptures, for me, it's pretty clear. It's taken me a while to get to that place where I can clearly see. I believe the scriptures make it clear there will be a rebuilt temple. If you look at uh, Daniel, the prophet Daniel, when he's talking about end day events, he talks about it in chapter nine. He talks about a, 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 um, the, de- the, how do you say, the abomination that causes desolation in the holy place. That's a key part, in the holy place. Jesus himself in Matthew 24, when he's talking about end time events, he talks, he quotes Daniel. So when Jesus is preaching to the crowds and he wants to have a, a, a talk and he gathers them and says, hey guys, I wanna, give, I wanna talk today about end time, prophecy. He quotes Daniel. And some people say, well, it was fulfilled 2,000 years ago. Antiochus Epiphanes IV in the second century BC, the Greek ruler, But I think in the context that Jesus gave it, I don't think it's been fulfilled. It may have been partially. Because another thing that needs to be fulfilled, he said, he said it will be like the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, in the same way, we talk about the abomination that causes desolation. Do we want that to happen? No, of course not. Do we want it to be like the days of Sodom and Gomorrah? Of course not. We pray against it. We don't support it. We don't pray for it to happen. We pray against it. So I'm not saying we should write out our checks and support the rebuilding of the temple. By the way, there are a lot of Christians that are doing that. They are supporting. And I'm, I'm not, definitely not saying that. I personally think that there are more important things. Paul, I think it's Paul or Peter says, we should help those in need first in the family of God. I think there are, you know, um, but anyway, that's, that's what individually between you and God. Uh, so, but these are signs, everyone. These are signs. When we see what's happening with the prophecy, it will be like the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. We, we, you don't have to, ha- you know, have, uh, you know, it's right in front of us big time, spiraling, out of control. And I see the same thing happening with the rebuilding of the temple. And it could be, it could be that the, the, the nations, that there's some kind of uh, ecumenical move, or it could be, and I'm, I kind of go back and forth on this, it could be that the, the, the spirit of the Jewish people, they rise up so much, like in the prophet Haggai, chapter one, 
when the returnees come back to the land, they see the temple in ruins, they're about busy building their own homes while the house of the Lord lies in ruins. And Haggai the prophet says, consider your ways, go up to the mountain, bring wood and build for the house of the Lord. And then it says, then the spirit of the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and he stirred up the spirit of Joshua and he stirred up the spirit the spirit of the people, and they said, come and let us work. And that's what I'm sensing, that the spirit of the people, they're saying, this is the, 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 the generation, we are gonna build it. So keep tuned, stay tuned. Um, what I'm saying is pretty much what I've observed, what I'm sensing. Test everything I'm, I'm saying. Challenge me, challenge others who are talking about it. But like, again, the book of Esther, when you look at everything that's happening, you may not necessarily see a verse of scripture or see the name of God, but the picture is very, very clear. You can see the hand of the Lord all over it. And of course, in 2 Thessalonians, it talks about a man of unrighteousness or unlawfulness one day will sit in the temple of God as God. And a lot of people call this man the Antichrist. And as I was referring to before, that maybe this ecumenical movement, maybe it will be good, maybe there will be a peace, but there's gonna be a change, we know, from the book of Daniel, from the book of Revelation. So I'm just throwing out seeds, thoughts for you to think of, everyone. But we in the land, we are praying for the salvation of Israel. Paul says in Romans 11, that blindness in part has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles and then all Israel will be saved. That's what we pray for, the salvation of Israel. One day that they are gonna see, as it says in Zechariah 12, they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. They shall weep and they shall mourn. Just like Joseph's brothers, when Joseph revealed himself and they were in shock, he said, I am Joseph, your brother. They couldn't believe it. And then, remember what he said? He said, come near, come near. And I often think and believe that the reason why he said that, I think he probably showed them the physical sign that he was their brother. They didn't believe it. He had been so many years, 17 years, since they saw him. And he had to show them the physical sign. He said, come near. And I think to take that a step deeper, I think it's really important for the Jewish people to understand the Jewishness of Jesus. Because when the brothers came to Joseph, they didn't know it was his brother. They thought he was an Egyptian. He was a Gentile. For 2,000 years, the Jewish people they see this religion called Christianity that has in many ways gone so far away from her Jewish roots. I mean, you are aware that your Messiah is Jewish, right? And Paul says the root supports you and you have been uh, grafted into the olive tree and you have become partakers of the commonwealth of Israel. So I think it's really important for the Gentile church to understand the Jewishness of Jesus and even the Jewishness of your religion. 
so that when you meet someone that's Jewish, perhaps instead of saying, you know, you should believe in my Messiah, maybe turn around a little bit and say, I believe in your Messiah. Give it a little bit of a spin. So anyway, I want to thank you. And I know I've covered a lot and been a little bit scattered, but there's just so much to talk about. And I don't know if you want to have any questions, but um, thanks for coming out and uh, sacrificing your Saturday night. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Would you like to ask a few questions if you would just raise your hand? All right, I'll bring you a, mi a microphone. And uh, if you need to go, you're free to go. If you need to uh, go to the restroom or water break or whatever, but we'll just spend a little time answering some questions. You got a question? Did you raise your hand? Oh, that's close. It's like an auction. You rub your eyes. All right, who's got a question? Raise your hand. Okay. I am very curious as to why you think uh, or the Jewish people think that Esther was 62. I've always heard that, that she is much younger. You know, when I said that, I realized I shouldn't have said that. Okay. Yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, I am also intrigued why the rabbis say that. It wasn't me, it was the rabbis. They believe that in that day, um, kings, just like David, Abraham, Moses, they had more than one wife. Uh, just like today, Muslims have more than one wife. Um, and usually they have more than one wife for different roles, different functions. So they believe that Esther probably was the, the, the wife of King Ahasuerus. She was the statesman wife. He had his other wives for different purposes and different reasons. Based on Mordecai, the uncle, and they, uh, I can't remember all the argument behind it, but that she would have been the statesman wife, 62 years old. They average it. Um, based on other uh, ancient kings and the ages of their statesmen, uh, stateswoman. Um, and, you know, in our culture, um, well, in that culture, 62 was, you know, pretty senior, if I can use that word. But uh, for those of you today who have lived all of your life and thinking that she was a teenager, you know, you can still have a very beautiful 62-year-old, right? I, I throw that in in case someone wants to throw something at me. Could you just speak a little bit about your time in the Army and your beliefs uh, and how that affects you? <clears throat> that second part about my beliefs regarding what? How it affected me. Uh, so I am not a pacifist. Our army is called the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces. By nature, we are not aggressors. We have a very high sense of justice in our country. Uh, no one is above the law. We've had ex-presidents, ex-prime ministers that have been sent to prison. So um, soldiers that abuse their authority, they are dealt with very strictly. So... Um, I, I just lay that down because it's not like a pirate army. It's a very strict, well-disciplined, well-run military. It's compulsory. I didn't choose to go into the army. 
When I immigrated, I was like about 25. Um, so I didn't have to do the compulsory three years. I only had to do six months. And when Pastor Joel said I was in for nine years, that was nine years of reserve duty. So I actually only did six months, and then I did nine years of reserve duty, which meant one month every year for nine, nine, uh, nine years. And um, yeah, I found it really hard. Uh, my, my Hebrew wasn't so good. I had to learn the language. When I did my six months, it was in the middle of the summer, wearing all this heavy duty stuff. It was really hot in the Middle East there, averaging about 110 degrees. It was really very difficult. Um, I never shot. I never came into any combat. There were a few times that I was ready. Um, But it's the nature of where we live. Um, Like the psalmist who said, we are for peace, but our enemies are for war. And I honestly believe that about our nation. We are a democracy. We're not a dictatorship. We're not looking to drive out any of our enemies. We truly want peace with our neighbors if they want to make peace with us. But if they don't, especially under the premiership of Benjamin Netanyahu, now it's like there's a zero tolerance. Uh, it used to be that we would, we would be like the incredible Hulk, Bruce Banner, that you know got a few punches first before we fell down and turned into a monster and then disproportionate retaliation. At least that's how it's interpreted. Um, now we don't wait until we're knocked down. Now we, it's a zero tolerance. So, and that's kind of the language that our neighbors appreciate. And I think they're waking up and they're realizing, in fact, the two main reasons. Some, some people ask, why is there a new Middle East? Why are these Muslim nations making peace with Israel? And the two main reasons, number one, we, along with a lot of the Muslim nations in the Middle East, we have a mutual enemy, and that is Iran. Iran are Shiite Muslims, but most of the nations are Sunni Muslims. And these Sunni Muslims, they don't like the Iranians, and neither do we, Israel. So we have a mutual enemy. And number two, a lot of these Muslim nations, with their oil and with their money, they are still behind in so many fields of technology, high tech, and all of that, they look at this modern state of Israel, uh, you know, the size of uh, New Jersey, and they see that per capita in the world, we are by far the biggest winners of uh, Nobel Peace Prizes. They say they've got their act together. They're doing something. We've got a lot that we can learn and take from them. And so that's the other reason they're making peace with us. So We are for peace, they are for war. So as a believer, I I didn't have any problem um, serving in the army. I mean, I would hate to shoot someone, but if they came and they, if I saw a terrorist, you know, I'd hate not to do something as well. And you know, it's it's the old argument. I remember when I went to Bible college, I did a paper. Is there such a thing as a just and holy war? And one of the key things I remember putting in that uh, paper was it was on the issue of the argument of the lesser of the two evils. Meaning, if you see an evil coming your way and you're a pacifist and you don't do anything about it, um, 
you are allowing an evil to happen. But if you stand up and you kill the man, which is evil in a way, well, what's the lesser of the two evil? And so it's that whole argument. So, um, yeah, I, I didn't really struggle too much with it. It's just, uh, I mean, don't, don't a lot of people in southern states of the United States carry guns? We probably have 25 in here right now. <laughs> right. Back in the 1970s, I was listening to Southwest Rare Bible Church in Oklahoma City, and they kept talking about the red heifer. And so this has been my mind. But um, about the Palestinians and you, are they still causing problems? The Palestinians? Yes. So let me, as brief as possible, explain the 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 Palestinian situation. Before 1948, before Israel became a nation, that land, plus a greater part of that map, that land was called Palestine. It was called that by the Roman Emperor Hadrian in the year 132 to 135 AD. He changed the name of that land, which used to be called Judea. He changed it to Palestina Secunda, and it's believed that he changed it because he wanted to name that land after the ancient Philistines. So when he did that in the second century and called it Palestina, it wasn't named, it, it didn't become a national homeland for any people. It was a regional area, kind of like a continent, Europe, Africa, Australia, Australasia, um, Antarctica, Okay, in 1948, when we became a, la a nation, we decided to change it back to its original name. We were actually going to call it Judea, but we decided to change it to Israel because Jacob's name was changed to Israel and his descendants, the 12 tribes for whom we're all uh, related to. Uh, we are the sons of Israel, the children of Israel, so we changed it to Israel. Now, what happened when we changed that land to Israel, the day before it was called Palestine. But again, it wasn't a national homeland to anyone. This is the problem. The Arab nations, all the Arab nations surrounding us, they did not accept the United Nations vote for the state of Israel. There were 33 nations for, 13 against, and 11 nations abstain. So it's the majority. But they didn't like it. And they rejected the state of Israel. And they actually waged war with us the next day. Because they did not accept the state of Israel, the Arabs living in the land the next day when it became Israel, David Ben-Gurion, our prime minister, he offered any person living in that land citizenship with all of the rights of a citizen. Now, some Arabs took citizenship, and we call them today Arab Israelis, and they have full rights. Some of them actually serve in our military and in our police. But a lot of the Arabs rejected Israel. They still live in our land, and they identify themselves as Palestinians. They basically want to go, they want to get rid of Israel, 
and go back to what it was called before 1948. I hope that helps explain it. Um, so we still have a lot of Arabs who live among us who want their own statehood. We've had prime ministers who have given them land, who have said, yes, we're going to try. But instead of getting peace, we've had terrorism after terrorism after terrorism. We've had left-wing liberal prime ministers who have given Yasser Arafat land and had thousands and thousands of missiles fired over. And even the left-wing liberals say we were deceived. But there's still talk about this two-state solution that somewhere in that land, we Jews will have our territory and the Arab Palestinians within that land, they will have their territory. Personally, I don't think it'll ever happen. I think they had their chance under Arafat and they blew it. It's like Golda Meir, our one and only female prime minister, who they say actually was the only man in the government at the time. But she said, the Palestinians never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. They had it big time. And what's really set back the, the peace agenda or the Oslo peace is a man called Donald J. Trump. Because when he moved the embassy to Jerusalem, recognizing that Jerusalem is our eternal capital, it really put the peace back. And, you know, he made it clear. He said, we've tried for the last 20 years, Camp David this, Camp David that. Nothing has worked. We're going to try something new. And now with the Arab Muslim nations joining the Abraham Peace Accord, the Palestinian issue is kind of getting pushed more and more and more off the table. But the problem is that there's been new waves of terror arising from among some of these Palestinians. I don't know if you've been hearing, but we had a, not uh, yesterday, but last Shabbat, last Sabbath, we had a terrorist go into a synagogue and uh, kill eight people. But really, terrorism is down to almost zero over the last 15 years because of a security wall that we've been building. And you know, security walls work. Maybe you should try it here. <laughs> I don't want to get political. So I'm curious, uh, when you're talking with other Jewish people, how do you discuss the gospel? Um, <clears throat> probably the two biggest stumbling blocks to Jewish people are the whole issue of hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, okay? It's called the Shema, Shema Yisrael, hero Israel. So, you get a Christian comes along and he says, oh yeah, I believe in the Trinity. I believe in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they say, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So you get a Christian. He says, well, I believe in one. I believe in the Father, Son, and the Holy. It doesn't, it doesn't calculate in their theology. So how do you explain it? So the best way is you... Firstly, you, you put aside the New Testament for a minute because their Bible is not the New Testament, it's the Old Testament. And basically, something that helps is understanding that the Hebrew word for hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, it's actually a plural word. It's the word echad, and it's the same word used when a man leaves his mother and father and cleaves to his wife 
the two become echad, one. So a married couple, are they two or are they one? Anyone? They're both. They're both. They are one corporate and yet they're two individuals. And that's way, the way I express it. It's a Hebrew word. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's a plural, plural word. And also in Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2, the Hebrew word, Bereshit bara Elohim. It's the word Elohim, which is for God, and it's a plural, plural word. It's not El. El is singular. Elohim is plural. And then verse 2 says, The Spirit of God hovered over the waters. And then Proverbs 30, verse 4, it says, Who ascended to heaven and descended? Who gathered the winds in his garment? What is his name and what is his son's name? It's like, where was Solomon when he wrote that? What was he on? Because it's like, where did, how did he write that? Why did he write that? But he wrote it. What is his name and what is his son's name? Ma Shem Beno. It's very clear in the Hebrew. So that's the one big stumbling block, the whole issue of the, the, the Godhead. The other big issue is Jews don't believe that God can appear in bodily form. That is like blasphemy to Jews. So to say that Yeshua, Jesus, is the Son of God or Emmanuel, God with us, God in the flesh, even though it's in their scripture, uh, this is something that is, is, is blasphemy. So you need to find a few verses in the Bible that, uh, that helps. Um, Proverbs 30, verse 4 that I quoted, Jacob wrestling with a man. That's what it says. He wrestled with a man in the Genesis text. Hosea says he wrestled with the, the angel, which is a messenger. But in the Genesis 32 text, he wrestled with a man. But Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, which means the face of God. He called the name of the place Peniel because he saw God's face and lived. I use that one. Um, it... Uh, there are other verses that I, I can't quite think of, but these are the two big, big things. And, um, and then, of course, you go to sacrifice, the sacrifice for sins, the need for the sacrifice of sins, and, um, and Isaiah 53, you know, the, the suffering servant, which some of the ancient rabbis actually believe. They say it's got to be talking about God. Only God can fulfill that. So, um, but, you know, you can... You can tell them till you're blue in the face. You, you can actually say, you know, read Isaiah 53, and they will say, this is talking about the Messiah. This is talking maybe even God himself. And then you say, well, we believe it was fulfilled by the historical person. Oh, no, 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 I don't believe that. So there's got to be some kind of divine spark that they get to, um, to help them to see. Sir. Witnessing to um, non-Jewish believers. Um, yeah, all of the above. You know, I've had these conversations. Um, you know, it's very hard for them to, to argue when you, you know, you can, when you're talking about the Trinity, you can use like an egg. 
You know, there's the shell, there's the yoke, there's the white, there's three in one. It's, not very, it's a bit of a weak argument to Orthodox Jews. But when you use their scriptures and you say it's a plural word and Elohim and, you know, let us make God in our image, it's very hard when you, when you lay it. So, you know, they, they, they think about it. They, I haven't had a lot of success as far as, you know, fishing for men and getting a big catch, but lots of seeds, lots of seeds sown. And, um, you know, we have people going out on the streets, handing out booklets. Um, I remember I, I was talking to a South African doctor, an Orthodox Jew, and I shared with him the story of Jacob, how he, he, uh, he wrestled with a man, and yet he called the name of the place Peniel because he saw God's face and lived. And his, his eyes were like, wow. And he was like, he, he was speechless. And he went his way, I went my way. I don't know what happened, but um, he, he was left stunned. So, but, uh, you know, I tried with my mother, and uh, she's like a real closed, uh, closed book. And I pray for her. And, you know, miracles can happen. One day, you know, I'd like uh, her to... to uh, for, the, for once in my life, I would love to say to my Jewish mother, Mom, I'm right and you're wrong. Because <laughs> I don't think it's ever happened before. Well, and it's also fair to say, whether you are in America speaking to uh, a Gentile uh, or an American, or whether you are in Israel speaking to a Jew, or wherever you are on the globe, uh, we share the gospel and we are to shine light in a dark world. Those that receive it, that's, that's left up to God. And, and like, just right. like you receiving it, it, it yeah. took, you called it a spark, a yeah. spiritual spark. Yeah. And so God does that. And sometimes, we, you know, we, we struggle. You do, I do, uh, somebody who shares the gospel does when people don't receive this beautiful story, this amazing message. Yeah. But that's God's economy, and he handles that. Clark? Yes. Yeah, so I had a screaming baby stuff. So you already said this, disregard, and I'll ask somebody else. But... Um, the question that, that you just asked, Jacob, was what I was going to ask. So I was going to ask you more, more personally, um, and this is what you might have already shared, was there a holdup for you in receiving Christ that you had to do some extra study and stuff on and be like, I, I, I'm not so, really sure about that? So that's actually, that question is, is kind of almost like a, a stumbling block for me when I evangelized because I had absolutely no struggle. I was like a, an apple on a tree and someone just came along and picked me up. I was ready. I was, he, he shared the Lord with me and it was like going from being an agnostic where I, you know, I grew up in an Orthodox family, but I wasn't really sure whether there was a God, whether there wasn't. You know, tradition was a big part of our religion, culture. Um, so when he started to talk to me, it was like, bam, the Holy Spirit just started to move, and the words that he used were just like burned in my spirit. I had no intellectual struggle. It just made sense. This was in New Zealand. Yeah. Uh, so I kind of think, well, when I go out evangelizing, I think, okay, this is how it's going to be with everyone, and that's my stumbling block, because it's not. But that's what happened to me. So, Yeah. I just, uh, I was like, like a Damascus Road experience. I was struck down, and I was like, wow, uh, is this real? Um, 
you know, you will know the truth. The truth will set you free. You mentioned the salvation of Israel. And um, so just curious about your thoughts on whether it's chronology or association or however you want to answer it. But um, salvation of Israel, the rapture, Gog and Magog, war, and like what may bring that like to pass. I'm, I'm wondering if the, always wondering if the Abraham Accords, you know, things are getting peaceful, maybe defenses are down, folks are sitting on your northern border, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, so just a simple question like that, you know. Oh, I thought it was going to be a hard question. Okay, I'll make it as quick as possible because it's getting on. A lot of people look at Ezekiel 37, the gathering of the dead bones. And we're seeing that. The outcasts of Israel are coming back. Chapter 38 is the, and 39 is the war of Gog and Magog. <clears throat> and definitely like a piece, like a, either a jigsaw puzzle or a game of chess, the players are taking shape. Nations will come from the north, it says. If you look at our northern border, Syria, and those of you who come on a tour will be going right on that border up in the Golan Heights. In that place, Syria, where we've had a civil war there for the last 10, 11 years, where that vacuum has developed, people have been filling that vacuum, including Russia. I don't know if you know that, but we've got Russian soldiers on our northern border. Iran, Iranians. Uh, the uh, ISIS, Islamic Jihad, and our, uh, I won't go into too much, but we've got nations in Syria, which is on our northern border, number one. Number two, in that war, it says that the nations will come and take the spoils from Israel. And uh, this is just a kind of a side note, but I've often wondered what spoils are they gonna come and take from Israel? Now, it has been officially declared that in the lowlands of Israel, under the ground, we actually, but it's very, very deep under the ground, we actually have the same quantity of oil that Saudi Arabia has, but we haven't tapped into it yet. We are drilling and extracting oil from the Golan Heights, but very, very little. But, <coughs> but what's happened since the Russia-Ukraine war and don't underestimate how that is affecting end times. Because in, in, in the book of Daniel, it talks about 10 toes, 10 nations. The dust hasn't settled from this war yet, but I'm expecting to see a new conglomeration. Look at what's happening with NATO. New nations are wanting to join NATO. And look what happens. You know, Finland, Sweden, um, Turkey look like they may get even kicked out because they are refusing to allow Sweden to join. But before the war started, Russia was supplying Europe, all of Europe, a mass amount of land, 60% of their natural gas. Of course, in times like now where it's winter, gas is crucial for heating. That was before the war started. The moment the war started, all the United Nations and other nations put strong sanctions on Russia, which meant that Russia went from supplying Europe 60% of their gas to 13% of their gas only. And then what happened? Under the Baltic Sea, 
Three massive explosions happened. Of course, everyone's pointing the finger at America. Did you know that? They're saying that America did that. But because of those explosions, now Russia supplies 0% gas to Europe. So where are Europe getting their gas from? You may not know this. About 20 years ago, off the Mediterranean coast, which is our west coast, northwest, Israel struck an endless supply of natural gas, which we're not only pumping, we're supplying other nations. And secondly, about 10 years ago, we, we struck another supply of gas, which we haven't touched, but about three months ago, Lebanon, which is on our very northern border, Lebanon and Israel made not a peace deal, but a deal that that second supply of gas, Israel will take 60% of it and the Lebanese will take 40%. So we have a mass amount of gas, which a lot of nations are now coming to Israel purchasing from us, which the Russians are very, very upset about. (coughs) So keep your eyes open for these kind of events. I'm not too sure how it's all gonna work out. You know, I'm not the expert. Jesus even said, no man knows the day or the hour when the Son of Man will return, only the Father, which amazes me when some of these end time preachers come out and say, I know when it's gonna happen. But anyhow, um, again, it's kind of like a piece of a jigsaw, it's like seeing a jigsaw puzzle come together. But uh, I'm not one of these sensationalists that says, you know, in our generation, Jesus for sure is coming back. I definitely believe, you know, we're getting closer, events, you know, like the analogy the Lord gave of a woman pregnant. You know, when a, when a woman goes through those stages, I know I'm sounding like an expert how, what a woman goes through, but I'm not. But apparently, um, you know, there's, there's the painful times, there's the comfortable times, there's the kicking times, you know, you know something's on the way. Um, then there's, as it gets closer and closer, the, 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 the pain, the intensity. There is an intensity that is happening, um, but I think there's gonna be a few key things that have to happen first. The big thing in Israel is Iran. And just last week, we sent over three drones to take out some nuclear plants. Two were taken down, one did some damage, And there's big questions, why Israel did it? And the latest I've heard about that is Israel did it on a small scale, maybe to send a psychological message to Iran, or maybe a psychological message to the Americans. Because if we did it alone, it would be very difficult. Because Iran's very big and you have to go in very, very deep. But if we did it with the help of the United States, um, I think it would be very different. America, under Joe Biden, that is. uh, I I know when I say America, uh, not everyone agrees with the president, but um, he's kind of a little bit almost, he's kind of on one hand, he says we will never allow Iran to go nuclear, but on the other hand, he puts billions of dollars in the Iranian uh, government's pockets by lifting sanctions. So it's a little bit hard to read. The Israeli people, when they look at Joe Biden, 
they're still not 100% sure. I mean, they look at him and they say, okay, he's getting on and maybe his faculties aren't 100%. But as far as his decisions, nothing really serious has happened yet, but people are talking about a showdown between our government and your government. You know, it's start, I mean, not a, not a military showdown, but a, a political that over Iran, it could turn out that we may go different ways. Time will tell, I hope not. Um, we hope that the Americans will stand with us. But uh, it, it can't go on the status quo. Something has got to happen with Iran because a nuclear Iran, living with that, it would be like really terrible. So, yeah. All right. Have you enjoyed Iran tonight? Thank you for joining us. Excellent job. Yes, and uh, if you don't have a place of worship tomorrow, I invite you to come back tomorrow, and he'll be speaking again in the morning. And uh, all of us should find a place to worship tomorrow. And, uh, and just like he said, he said, I don't know when the end time is, but all of us are supposed to live as if we are in the last days. All of us are supposed to be expectant. All of us are supposed to be prayerful, not just for the Lord's return, but for the salvation of Israel. And so uh, that's our challenge as we leave. Let's pray and we'll dismiss. Father, we thank you so much for this time together. We thank you, God. You know the beginning from the end. You know it all. Uh, you know all the details. There's no surprises from your vantage point. And so, God, we just trust you with every day of our life here. And uh, we trust you with our eternal destiny through Jesus, your son. We thank you for Aharon. God, we pray your blessings upon him and his family and his ministry and, and uh, all that he does. We pray that he moves as he moves forward and then returns back home. God, that you'll just keep him safe and continue to use him in a powerful way. We give you praise for everything. We pray it in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. You are dismissed. Thank you so much for coming tonight. <laughs>